hell. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. Germany's retail sector, especially within the fast fashion industry, is experiencing digitalization, and they never saw it coming. And likely, workers around the world, they won't either when digitalization comes to them, and it will if it has not already. First, there were the RIFD tags that made sense. After all, it was a great way to stop shoplifting. But then those tags became something else, something more. They were no longer only trying to stop customers from walking off with merchandise. They are now being used so management, from afar, could more fully understand inventory, what was hot and what was not, and where it was hot and where it was not. Suddenly, they could send product to where it was wanted as quickly as it was ordered. All they had to do was arm all their employees with electronic devices that have them constantly on the move for the new, more grueling retail work, where instead of you building relationships with customers and fellow workers, the few interactions you actually have with the public are negative, while you and your co-workers are at each other's throats. Remember how we were all afraid of losing our jobs to automation? The new fear is losing our minds and lives, our actual physical health to digitalization, which is an actual threat to your life. So, who would allow themselves to participate in this new world of worker exploitation through digitalization? Well, all those people in the self-checkout line are contributing to it directly, as for whatever reason, they want to do the work of a retail clerk without getting paid by a huge corporation that's raking in millions, if not billions. You know who's stealing American jobs? Anyone in the self-checkout line. We'll be introduced to the frightening future and president of a completely digitalized value chain in a few minutes when we speak with Yanina Hirth and Marcus Rhine, who co-authored the article Algorithmic Assembly Lines, Digitalization and Resistance in the Retail Sector, which appeared at the Transnational Institute website. You can find the article and more about the Transnational Institute at TNI.org. Yanina and Marcus are members of the Transnational Information Exchange Network, a global grassroots network of workers active in workplaces and communities. You can learn about the Transnational Information Exchange at tie-germany.org. That's tie-germany.org. I know a dash and a hyphen aren't the same thing, but deal with it. Yanina and Marx's essay is part of the Digital Futures series on technology, power, and emancipation organized in collaboration with Roar Magazine. And you can find Roar Magazine at roaramag.org. It's Tuesday, which means producing today is Alex Jerry. Alex, what have you been up to lately? Ah, oh, man. Same old, same old. I did want to say, though, a uh, listener and friend of the show, Robert P., is uh, fighting cancer right now. So I want to wish him strength and good luck. He's always there with guest suggestions or to let me know that the stream volume is too low <laughs> or with Thomas Merton recommendations. So I uh, hope to see you this summer, Robert. We're thinking about you. Yeah, and uh, Robert always comes to the anniversary parties. We always appreciate it. I think he's been listening for over 20 years. So, Robert, we're thinking about you, and we are hoping for the best, as I'm certain you are as well. Uh, after hanging out with friends for the first time in a very, very long time this past Friday night, I woke up Saturday morning early. I mean, like, way too early. Like, I, I should have been sleeping in. And I woke up early, and I was oddly still in bed and happy. And I could not figure it out for the life of me why I was so experiencing joy. It was the first time I was looking forward to the day in, 
I don't even know how long. I had a, a really productive day, got all sorts of stuff done around the house. Took me a couple of days to figure out why I was so oddly happy on Saturday morning. A joy that drove me out of bed when I should have been taking that opportunity to sleep in just for, for once. That's when it hit me. I was buzzing off the residual high of actually seeing and being with friends. Sure, we're still all wearing masks and only hanging out outdoors and so socially distanced, but it's finally warm enough where that's possible and infections are declining and positivity rates are dropping. Although there are new variants that have just arrived in the United States, so who the hell knows what's next. All that said, last weekend was a reminder for me of how important people, friends, socializing, camaraderie, human contact, even if it's not physical, how essential that is to my happiness and well-being, and probably yours too. But more importantly than any of that, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Maybe the real infection is the friends we made along the way. Oh, look at you. So, so deep. This week's question from hell is, <laughs> what got you kicked out of the commune? What got you kicked out of the commune? <laughs> the person with your favorite answer to this week's question from hell, I hope it's not mask wearing, wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. You can check out all of your merch, all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute too completely listener supported this is hell remember without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your support you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our facebook page you can tweet it to us at this is hell radio you can email it to us at chuck at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following jeff dorchard in the moment of truth during this week's moment it's jeff and the jews again alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell Following Yanina and Marcus, not only can you email us, tweet at us, message us via Facebook, you can also send us stuff to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And we keep getting art from Detroit and the wonderful human beings at KP Printing. We can only assume they are human beings as they are communicating using a written language. They've sent us another of their 4 by 6 inch cardboard cards with words emblazoned upon them artistically. They've sent us cards with words in the past like uh, progress has its own problems. They quoted P-Funk with free your ass and your mind will follow. Or was it free your mind and your ass will follow? And a series on Joe Biden which read, Joe Biden is the last sexist president, and another that says Biden is the last racist president, and yet one more that says Biden will be the last capitalist president. A series that I haven't really wrapped my head around quite yet. KP Printing has also sent us a couple of beautiful books, one on printing in Detroit and the other is a people's history of printing. In the mail this time, KP Printing sent us another of their four by six inch art cards. This one has a quote from Bayard Rustin, the 20th century African-American civil rights leader who also was active in nonviolence and gay rights and was one of the main organizers of the 1941 March on Washington against racial discrimination in the workplace. Yes, that was happening over 70 years ago. The quote from Rustin is, I believe in social dislocation and creative trouble. I believe what Rustin is referring to here is the dislocation where people have been cut off from their cultures and individual identities by the globalization of free market society in which the needs of the people are subordinated to the imperatives of markets and the economy. 
And when, when that happens, yes, that's when we need creative trouble. So like Rustin, I too believe in social dislocation and creative trouble. And it looks like KP Printing in Detroit have come up with a new tagline for the show. This is how bringing you creative trouble, we hope, since 1996. We also got an email at chuckatthisishell.com from Josephine in Glasgow. Not to be confused with emails we get from another listener, Rue, in Glasgow, as This Is Hell apparently has a growing audience in Glasgow. I knew someday we'd break into that Glasgow market. That's all we needed to put us over the top. Jacqueline writes saying, Hi Chuck, Alex, Jeff, and the entire team. Thank you for your wonderful show. It's really by chance that I'm listening at all. Four years ago, I moved from the country to the city to pay my bills. I started my own domestic cleaning business. It was only then that I discovered what podcasts were, and I thought they might be good to listen to while I cleaned the homes of my clients. I got a podcast app and searched fairly randomly for something that might be interesting, and very fortunately, This Is Hell was one of the first podcasts I found. So I scrubbed my way through three years of kitchen floors, showers, and toilets, fairly oblivious to the work I was doing, whilst listening to your wonderful questioning of radical guests. Early on, I heard an interview with someone from Extinction Rebellion. Jacqueline is referring to our 2019 interview with Extinction Rebellion co-founder Claire Farrell, which you can find at thisishell.com when you search on Farrell. And if you don't know how to spell Farrell, just search on the word extinction. There's many interviews on extinction, and it's one of the first one that pops up. As a result, Jacqueline writes, I joined an Extinction Rebellion group, and I've been involved ever since. So thanks for that. Since then... Standouts on the show have been some great interviews you've done on blackness, racism, and coloniality, among many, many others. I hope you make it over to Glasgow at some point. It would be good to meet for a beer and show you some of the city, especially the works of Rennie McIntosh and Margaret MacDonald McIntosh, whom I think you are a fan of. Thank you all for a fantastic show, really an education. Take care and stay safe, all of you. Josephine, I'm sorry, I said Jacqueline earlier, Josephine. Josephine, family members have been talking about going to Glasgow for years. A couple of Christmases ago, I got a rare book of Margaret Ma- uh, McDonald Macintosh's stunning, stunning work, some of which is on display at the Macintosh House Museum in Glasgow, including a really amazing, beautiful fireplace mantle that Margaret designed. The book is incredibly rare because, like many female artists, their work was ignored, dismissed, and obscured by the works of her husband, despite Rennie clearly being influenced by Margaret's designs. In fact, the only book I could find was the catalog to one showing of Margaret's work from the 1970s. The book is flimsy, like any art show program with stapled binding. Maybe 50 pages was clearly used, a bit worn. Actually, it's kind of beat up. And still, it cost about 150 bucks. I also found a blank journal with a Margaret Macintosh-inspired uh, cover for under 10 bucks. If you're not familiar with Rennie or Margaret's work, check it out. If you are familiar with Rennie's but never heard of Margaret, that's understandable because, you know, misogyny. That said, search on Margaret McDonald Macintosh and see how she influenced artists like her husband, as well as others like Gustav Klimt. You can send us your comments on the show, guest or topic suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. DM them to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. Message us via Facebook Messenger at Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. Or just send us stuff in the actual mail to This Is Hell, 
2251 West Devon Avenue, Chicago, Illinois 60659. Coming up, the digitalization of retail is the newest nightmare for workers. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what got you kicked out of the commune? What got you kicked out of the commune? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support to see all of our merchandise here at Completely Listener Supported. This is hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, email it to us, tweet it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. The retail sector has always offered jobs at low pay with few benefits, if any. For instance, here in the States, in with an artifact from the Great Depression, overtime rules are waived for retail workers who are regularly scheduled to work more than 40 hours a week. But what those jobs did offer was flexible schedules, building relationships with customers and coworkers, as well as the opportunity to be creative, not only in advising your customers, but in the way merchandise is displayed in store. But now with digitalization, what little rewarding enjoyment retail workers once had has been stripped from that experience. With digitalization, workers are at each other's throats and their relationship with customers is usually bad as the only time they are in contact with customers is when something has gone horribly wrong with their order. Here to explain the digitalization of retail and what it means for worker exploitation as well as the potential for worker organizing up and down the entire value chain, Yanina Hirth and Marcus Ryan are co-authors of the article Algorithmic Assembly Lines, Digitalization and Resistance in the Retail Sector, which appears at the Transnational Institute website. Find the article and more about the Transnational Institute at TNI.org. Yanina, welcome to This Is Hell. Yeah, hello. Thanks for the invitation. And, Good to be here. And welcome to you, Marcus. Thank you for having us. Hello. Yanina and Marcus are members of the Transnational Information Exchange Network, a global grassroots network of workers active in workplaces and communities. Learn more about the Transnational Information Exchange at tie-germany.org. Let's start with you, Yanina. You and Marcus start the article by quoting Maram as she rushes across the floor of Frankfurt's Zara store. This is a fast fashion store, carrying an armload of shirts saying, I am their assistant. It gets me running. You run. You explain that it is her iPad, which is connected with the enterprise resource planning system that tracks every item in the store in real time. The system sends messages to the mobile devices telling sales assistants where to put the clothes, how many, and by when. The ERP system did not arrive overnight. First came the new Till software, starting in 2016 with, with RFID tags were introduced. Tiny radio transponders sewn into the products to identify inventory automatically without having to scan each piece. And finally, there was the new ERP system enabling a real-time tracking of the clothes. You then quote Maram saying, the new technologies were introduced gradually and we didn't see the bigger picture in the beginning. So Yanina... As I was saying, Zara is a fast fashion retailer uh, far before ERP. What was the bigger picture Maram and others, other workers did not see with these new technologies? And, and was that the intent, that they were not supposed to see what the plan was for RFID tags? 
Um, yes, um, actually, I think it was part of the strategy of Sarah to introduce new technologies gradually, because this is also part of the um, political question whether works councils have a say in the introduction and what part um, the technology um, brings with it, like does it really um, change the whole work process or is it only like single little steps of technological changes where the works councils that mostly look at um, all the decisions that are close to human resources are then not so much um, involved. So um, yes, the bigger picture was not there in the beginning. And now, as we also describe in the article, they really were hoping in the beginning for um, yeah, some of the working steps becoming easier. For example, the inventory uh, steps, there is not really a need for the workers to do it with pen and paper. It's maybe um, even nice and reducing stress. If you can do this in a digitalized way, you don't have to um, search for every item all the time. You have everything listed on your iPad or iPod. But then, um, as we describe, the bigger picture that is coming up is that it's not technology that assists the tasks that there were there before, but um, that it also introduces new possibilities of control, um, which we have with the anecdote of the manager calling when um, he is not even in the store and seeing whether some of the clothes are already stored away or whether they are still um, at the place where they arrived. So this means it's not um, only a tool for the workers to have an overview about their work, but um, on the other side, it's a new tool for the management to have control and like an um, in-time control over every step um, the workers are doing in the end because they are working with the clothes that have the RFID tags in them. So, Marcus, should we be concerned if our employee or employer tells us that we are introducing new technologies that will create ease and convenience for workers? Should we see that as these aren't tools of ease and convenience, but these are tools of control? Well, I guess it's always a question of are we accepting the, the things that our employers are implementing or are we trying to have influence on that? As we try to, to, to make our point here is that the technology implemented is always kind of an expression of a, of a how do you say that, of a struggle that's taking place. And I'm, I'm I think that especially the whole management control thing is also con connected to some sort of an ideological shift towards a new type of management that's taking place that might also affect the way we perceive ourselves at the workplace. And this is also at stake here. So I say, yes, we should always be concerned if our employers try to sell us something and argue that it might make our work easier because there's always obviously i don't know if 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 we have it in this paper but some some 
buddy told me that we should always ask the question, who's really benefiting from the technology that is implemented? Is it us or is it the company? And will the company really implement something that's benefiting just us? And this is a question that we should always have in mind if a, an employer comes by and says, look at this, this is making work way easier. Well, let me follow up with you on that, Marcus. So why do you think it is that f far too often workers see technology, not just workers, even people who aren't necessarily in retail, why do we view technology as objective and not having any kind of uh, political reasoning behind it? I guess that's a good question. And I, I, I don't really know why we think this. I, 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 I guess it's part of a of a process that's taking place in the whole society. So we, we perceive so, technology as something that's just coming over us, but it's actually not like that. It's a discourse. I don't know if you have the same discourse in the US, but we had it in the in the early 2010s in, in Germany, especially with the whole, it's called, it was called industry 4.0 discourse that that was basically arguing that technology or the technolo technological advancements will be coming no matter how we decide. And we have basically two different positions that we can take. Either we take a Luddite approach of um, resisting against it, or we try to, to use it and, and benefit from it. And I guess in, in this whole um, I don't know how, how to say that in the in this whole environment so socially, we we think that it's something objective that's coming by. But if we take a closer look, and this is what we're what we were trying to 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 find out here in this uh, work as well, is that we we can perceive ourselves not so much as the victims of a process that's taking place, but we can also influence this process and argue about the technology. And this is very important. Yanina, I worked in retail bookstores for around five years, mostly in neighborhoods where I could not afford to live. The work can be physically exhausting as it is the service sector can also be incredibly demeaning. It does not pay very well for the vast majority of retail employees who actually work in stores. If you get any benefits, they usually aren't enough. The only things that made it tolerable were my relationships with coworkers, others in retail work whose businesses were on the same block as well as some regular customers. In other words, the only good part of the job is when you are supposedly not working so, Yanina, how much more miserable has retail work become? And are retail workers at places like the Zaha facility in Frankfurt getting rewarded for their more surveilled and miserable retail work? Well, yeah, there are different layers of the worsening of the work for sure. Like the one part is that you said, like what all the retail workers um, tell us we're working with, we're talking to is really this point. The most rewarding uh, part of the work is a good relation to, to the customer, like this emotional work, which also gives um, yeah, a certain autonomy. This is something that is not so easily replaced by like a technological advice. That is something that really 
yeah, shapes us as humans having this exchange, but also having exchange with the co-workers. And this is reduced a lot since, yeah, personal is reduced in general um, as like a parallel to the story of um, technology being the assistant. So you don't need that much stuff on the floor which is not true in the end, but is still um, done at the same time. So this is uh, the one part of the worsening, but actually also for um, Sarah and other like fast fashion or young fashion also um, chains we work with um, in the long run already. It is also a worsening of like the hard factors of the work. So. What um, is actually part of this strategy of re reducing staff is also to look at what is um, the more expensive stuff at the moment. So they try to get rid of people that worked there for 20 years already, that have older contracts, that have more benefits still. So. Of course, it's not like a job where you can get rich. You can't get rich by jobs anyway, but um, it was still much more solid than the new contracts they are offering now. For example, in Frankfurt, they closed like one of the stores. They got rid of a lot of old uh, stuff with old contracts um, where a lot of people still had like um, benefits like um, extra Christmas money and where they had like 40 hour contracts maybe or 30 hours at least. So like really um, an amount of hours also where you can live from. And then um, they got offers to go to other stores um, with like 15 hour contracts without with like um, no benefits anymore. Um, maybe also not with um, with fixed contracts. So this is all the like hard factors that are worsening as well at the same time. Well, Yanina, again, let me follow up with you then, because I don't want to make the mistake of being somebody who worked in retail decades ago and then using that as the barometer for how customer service should be today, because retail has changed so much. So for those who did work in retail and assume they understand what it's like to work in retail, how has retail changed? Because I don't want to be that that person who judges the quality of service by my experiences. I would assume working in retail is has not changed since the past. So how has retail changed? What should people who formerly worked in retail prior to digitalization keep in mind when they are in the retail experience? Um, well, I think what is also important to see in this change is um, that the customers are also an active part. And what people often tell us is the impression of, you know, the customers, they just want to shop online now. It's more convenient for them. There is no need for service in the stores. And this is really also a one-sided perspective on the story because customers are also actively um, pushed into this direction by um, less cash points being open, by offering self-checkout cash points, by the staff being asked to make online sellings when customers come to the store and try to inform themselves in like a 
human to human direct contact. So um, it's really like an active process of digitalization where also like the customers and the workers are involved. Um, and at the same time, causing more conflicts, I think, yes, this word of conflict instead of like an exchange situation between the different people that are involved in the process is also yeah, a big part of the change. So there is not exchange anymore. There's no good teamwork. There's no good advice anymore, but there's conflicts between the customers and the staff. There's conflicts between the management and the staff. There's also conflicts um, between the colleagues because they're all really stressed. They are all really um, hurried up by the technology and by all the tasks they have to do at the same time. And this is also, yeah, um, a way of putting them into more competition. So, Marcus, how have those RFID tags then affected the sales assistant customer relationship? From the customer's perspective, what effects have tags had on the quality of customer service? Because I have heard from so many people of late that customer service is so much worse than it used to be in the past. And I'm just wondering if that's due to digitalization and our lack of recognizing that digitalization is making customer service worse. Well, I guess it's it's part of the whole process that we describe as digitalization. Digitalization, when, when we talk about this, we talk right now, we talk about the RFID tag, but it's not just the RFID tag. You know, you, you have the, you have with the RFID tag and the um, increase of speed, the increase of, of um, speed in the tasks that are performed, you can, you can save money by letting off workers. So that means one of the things is obviously you have less workers on the shop floor that have to perform the same tasks or even more tasks eventually in less time and that means obviously that at some point you get in a hurry and, and then every customer that has a question for you is kind of a, a stress factor for you in your, in your everyday work life. You, you described that yourself, uh, you told you, yourself that you were working in, in a bookstore. And I was working in a bookstore as well a few years ago and even without the RFID tag, when it was Christmas time, sometimes I perceived the workers as uh, uh, the, the, the customers as a stress factor. And this has increased by far because you don't have um, that many workers on the shop floor anymore. And at the same time, the amount of, of products that you have to move through the store has increased. And then in, in addition to that, it comes that the, the workers we talked to described us that you have another task that is connected not so much to the RFID tag, but to the um, multi or, or omni-channel options. So people order their stuff into the store and you have to get, hand it out to them or you even have to take it back, which is another task that comes in addition on top to what you already had to to perform. So it's, it's more and more and more. And of course, from a customer's perspective, you just 
you you just see yourself in the store and you see yourself running around and there are no workers and you cannot ask anybody for advice or anything but at the same time people tell you yeah well if you want advice use this electronical device use the mirror use your phone use whatever so it's kind of sourced out to yourself and this is also part of the of the um process that is taking place that we describe as digitalization so it's not only the rfid tech but it's also whole processes that change so market do you think do you think marcus do you think it's intentional that they've come up with a system that makes customers makes consumers more poorly informed i wouldn't say intentional i think it's I think there is some part of intention with it because you obviously you can save money if you let off workers and you, you don't have to pay that much wages anymore. And maybe if the customer performs a lot of the tasks him or herself, then you don't have to pay for that and you get some data out of it eventually as well. So that is part of an of an intentional process that is taking place in in terms of how society changes changes um but at the same time I, i would i would think that it's a dynamic that capital Im, Im, imposes on the stores and on the whole retail sector that it has to abide to and and to 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 keep surviving it has to change and therefore obviously also try to to adapt to the new ways. And Yanina, you touched on something in your last response that I want to get back to. You and Marcus write, the key to the reorganization of the clothing retail sector has been the introduction of omni or multi-channel options for consumers linking online and conventional brick-and-mortar stores. Retail brands, advertising, and distribution channels now include physical stores, online platforms, mail order, and social media. Despite rumors to the contrary, clothing brands do not want to close all their physical stores, but rather to combine online and offline shopping in what is promoted as the convenience of click and collect, where people can order online and pick up in person. So, Yanina, why is this what clothing lines want? Because, as as you point out, there is the rumor that customer sales assistant relationships are a thing of the past anyway with online shopping. So why wouldn't clothing lines want to end the need to pay sales assistants and to rent storefronts in expensive neighborhoods when they can buy a warehouse in a more low-rent area? Well, I think they're doing a combination of both as we see the trends at the moment. Um, I think it's still important for the brands or for the companies um, to have some presence within the cities. Um, This is not something you can just like um, replace from one day till the other. Um, And we see this trend of having like the best offering the best user experience i think in a lot of different uh, branches so for the retail the companies are trying to offer um, a better user experience in the way that they 
closed down some of their old stores with old concepts, like the normal concept kind of we know. Uh, you go in, you have a lot of clothes, you can pick your size and your color and you go out. And now what they're doing is they are building up really showrooms where you don't have a lot of um, things, but you have them really nicely presented. You maybe have a cafe next to it as well. So you have this whole, yeah, you have like this offer of a broader experience of shopping or also getting to your style. You know, it's really connected to this whole, we give you a lifestyle. We offer you um, coming to our whole brand and to a whole story, not only to clothes. So you come into new stores where um, little clothes are presented in a, um, much broader environment and then in the end you pick something or you find out about your style um, and you get um, the offer of a whole outfit which you then which then will be um, will be um, brought online and you pick it up later on so this is i think one of the future trends you have like an experience on the ground but it's different than before and it's always connected to um, the uh, the getting of more clothes online so this is also the connection you still have to have something like an anchor in the material physical life uh, but then it's always connected to getting more clothes um, buying more things online or having additional information online maybe as well or having additional offers online so it's this really smart move of connecting the two things also if you um buy something online and you have to pick it up in the store. Of course, it's also a smart um, way to do it because once you're in the store, you see new things again, maybe you buy something else on the hand. So it's not necessarily a bad deal for the companies to connect the two things instead of only having one. But Yanina, as you and Marcus also point out, incorrect pricing or stock information in Zara's own mobile shopping app upsets some customers who then blame the sales staff who have no influence on the information. This creates conflict between customers and shop assistants, changing the relationship from a normally rewarding one to a negative one. So Yanina, has customer service become only a negative experience as the only time you need human interaction is to address a complaint. Does digitalization make the only customer interaction an interaction at the complaint department? Um, well, at the moment it's a trend, but it's not a necessity. Like this comes back to our understanding of digitalization in general as like a political and as a contested process. So this is exactly what we try to work on to um, work with the workers on what are the things that um, got worse um, in the last years and how can we maybe influence uh, the technologies or the introduction of technologies and the organization of the work on the ground in a way that it gives new spaces to good advice for customers and where technology really has the role of assistance and not of uh, stressing workers even more, which is obviously possible, which 
um, yeah, it's not easy to realize in a capitalist system where profits are the main focus, but it's still contested and it's something we try um, to stress and we try to work on. And Marcus, you and Yanina also write that all these strategies to implement an increasingly digitalized shopping experience change not only customer behavior, but also city architecture as the larger brands build new stores and showrooms, offering a broader range of shopping options to the customer, crowding out smaller independent shops in the process. So, Marcus, superstores like Walmart have driven nearby small retail shops out of business, especially in rural areas of the United States. How much is digitalization a, a further threat to small businesses? Well, I guess it also depends on what Janina just said, how we how we contest it. I mean, in 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 the main frame, I would guess that so far it is a comparative advantage for the big ones to implement these technologies and by implementing these technologies gain a further advantage because you can um, advertise that you use new technologies while as the smaller stores might not have the money to um, implement a, an augmented reality mirror for example so that is so that drives them kind of out of business but at the same time, you have the um, you have this whole big data um, problem that also comes with the bigger companies. For example, if you have if you have Inditex, you have um, apps that you install in your phone, and then you you walk through a city. Um, precinct and you 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 instantly get advertising on your phone so it it drives you thereby but I, I'm not so sure if it's only about big stores versus smaller stores but I guess it's also about how the way the public sphere is changing that way you know you have the with these um, Bluetooth tokens that you can use to advertise, even if somebody's not in the store or some somewhere else, you can you can sort of nudge them into going into another store that you might have something that fits an item that they just bought last week. So in that way, you also have an influence on how people perceive the public sphere via this digital trend. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Uh, Yanina, you and Marcus also write that one worker called it digital outsourcing, but another corrected the saying, it is not outsourced to technology. No, the technology is just the means to outsource it to our customers. You add whether using the an app to choose an item of clothing, an augmented reality mirror, or paying at a self-checkout, customers now do all this themselves. The flip side is that sales assistants whose most valued task had been to provide a rewarding customer service have seen this taken away if they even retain their job. So Yanina, to you, what explains why customers are willing to work for retailers for free? Should customers stop using self-checkout, especially if they are concerned with what we are now calling essential workers, if they are essential? 
should we show that by not using self-checkout? Mm, well, this is always, um, I think, a little one-sided to just say, yes, as a customer, you should act this and that way. I think um, the individual customer influence is very limited in the end. Um, so my answer would be maybe, first of all, to reflect on the process and then maybe also look at the fact that the customers, they are workers mostly themselves in other um, fields or other branches. So I really think the workplace is still um, a very important um, yeah, part of our life. Obviously, we spend a lot of time there and we needed to earn our living. And digitalization is taking place in all these um, branches or in different companies and different sectors. So I think it's always good to reflect on what is happening with me as a customer and also maybe to transfer it to your whole own workplace and start a discussion there and start to get involved in the process of digitalization and the shaping of digitalization and working structures in your workplace. And I think it's interesting because this is actually the perspective I would say that um, the colleagues we work with um, have have maybe more than others that don't think about it um, that much. What they are saying themselves is, yeah, I see it also if I go to another store, if I maybe do my food shopping. I also see this trend that I'm forced to use the self-checkout. And of course, sometimes I do it because in this moment it can be convenient because just the line is longer on the last um, cash point where there is um, a real person. I would maybe like to go there, but I don't have the time. So I use the self-checkout at this point, of course. But um, in a bigger trend, I organized in the union and um, I have... Um, yeah, as one big topic, the digitalization of retail work in, is it clothing, is it food, both, and we get together, we organize, and we start a discussion on whether on a, so on a societal level, um, not on a individual customer level, do we want self-checkout cashiers, what is like maybe positive aspects, it doesn't necessarily like we don't have to stick with every job nobody wants to do as long as there is like a societal solution on how we earn wages and how um, labor is distributed kind of equally between the persons that um, need it. But so, yeah, I think the important question is to take it on like a political, on a societal level and have like a bigger discussion on where do we want to go, like the same as the bigger question of where do we want our city centers to go to? Do we want them to be deserted because there's no shops anymore? There's no public space anymore. It's the same for the role of the customer that is always linked to us as workers in a different sphere as well. 
And I think that's really fascinating, the idea of convenience being an obstacle to reflecting upon the world around you. Marcus, you and Yanina write that the volume of work has increased as management sees it. By outsourcing certain tasks to technology, there is more time for workers to perform other assignments. But as the introduction of technology came hand in hand with a decrease in the workplace, uh, workforce and the introduction of new activities, the workload, in fact, increased rather than decreased. So, Marcus, the idea was technology will work or make us work less, uh, make work less difficult for human beings, make work less difficult for all of us. That was the promise of technology. Is technology, through things like digitalization, making work more, not less difficult? And is that an anomaly in recent human history? Hasn't work always been getting less difficult recently and now for some reason out of the blue it's becoming more difficult or is that a poor analysis mm. <laughs> well that is that's partially what we're trying to argue with this as well is that work is just becoming more difficult because we don't have as much influence on the technology that is implemented as we might be able to have if i implement a, if if i implement the rfid tag in the beginning that that we write off and it comes in fact with um what janina already mentioned an, an inventory taking that is way faster and i can do it in less time and i and i can do it without the the extreme physical um strain that's also coming with the increase of, of product, products that I have to move, then it might really actually be something that is beneficial to us. But at the same time, if, if it, is, it is implemented and then you have layoffs and you have um, an increase of, of products that you, you have to sell and then you have in addition to that, the, the problem of dealing with the technology, you have to learn to understand how is the technology used? How can I implement it in my daily workflow? How can I, how, how do I have to read what the iPod tells me to and all these things? It makes it, it makes it harder and it makes it more stressful. And then you, you, you have a, a different perspective on it. And we, I mean, you, 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 you asked me about a shift of paradigms, but I think that as long as we, we think of this whole idea of technologies making work easier, we can exactly observe this thing of how we implement technology to take us this, this extra step, I, I, um, this extra step towards probably never having to work at all. But as long as we are part of this process of, of um, exploitation, obviously there is a, is, a, is a contradiction in how the technology is implemented and it is not there only to make work easier, but it's only it's also there to extract value out of our work. And that means that obviously 
if you make work easier and you have to you have people with more time left over that you don't just hand out the time but um, you, you want to have this time and make them work harder and faster and this is why we try to have this whole process of reflecting on what is this technology doing with our work how is it affecting us on a physical and on a psychological level to understand first what's going on there and then from that point on trying to to shape it a little bit more in the direction or hopefully eventually in the direction that it really helps us and is a is a technology that is making our making these aspects of our work that v we value um, better and not the ones that extract value if you know what i mean yeah and yanina you and marcus write about uh, the potential for labor organizing within digitalization. You write, in response, a global grassroots network of union and non-union activists called Transnational Information Exchange, or TIE, that's the organization that you and Marcus work with, has been collecting information to better understand these changes. For over 10 years, we have been working with garment retail workers in the exchange, exchange network and members of the German service sector trade union VER.di to develop a collective strategy to respond to these technological changes and fight for improved working conditions along value chains. Yanina, what might be the impact of focusing on value chains that are global and creating an international, if not global, worker solidarity, which many union activists have long dreamt about? Can such a focus lead to cross-border international worker solidarity, even cross-class? Um, yes, I think it can lead to a broader solidarity and to more strength in our struggles. This is really what we see, like um, what we do is really have um, physical exchange between the workers in different steps of um, the value chain. Um, so we have like physical meetings, maybe once a year or something, and then we also have exchange in between. So we always know about the struggles that are going on on different parts of the value chains, and we support our struggles. For example, um, during the crisis now in the last year, there was uh, shutdowns for a while, like also in different parts of the value chain, also in South Asia where the clothes are produced. And there was, for example, one factory in Bangalore um, closing where a lot of our organized colleagues uh, were working and they were on strike for um, a long period of time during the whole summer last year and they had like intense fights and it was a comp um, a factory that was mostly producing for H&M where we also um, work with the colleagues here in Germany but also in other countries in Europe and it really helped the struggle a lot to have this workers to workers solidarity to um, put the topic um, on the table for the H&M management also here in Europe. Um, and we do the same thing um, now that there are struggles in Germany and the colleagues in South Asia support them. And if you have this um, exchange on the long run, 
what always happens and what happens in the exchange about the concrete working conditions and also about the question, for example, how does the work affect our health? A question we talk about a lot because I think our health is something really <laughs> basic and necessary for us, like physical and psychological, and also something you can not leave on the door when going in and out of your work, but you have it with you all the time. So what affects you at work affects you as a person and as your whole life. Um, and in the exchange of these topics, we see a lot of similarities in the end. So it also, um, is like a counterweight about the telling of, oh, the workers in the global south, they are much worse off than we are in Europe. Uh, we can already be happy about what benefits and what working conditions we get here. Um, it's really an interesting process. We really um, counter this um, maybe prejudice or imbalance that is there. And the workers, they say, okay, we really have like um, similar problems. We all have like back pain. We all um, have like an increasing precarity in our jobs. We all get the same um, questions from our management. We get the same stress from our management. We get the same um, stories about care for your health and your private time, eat more apples, do more sports, and don't complain about your working conditions. Um, so this creates really solidarity, and this is the ground for common struggle. Um, and then on the other hand, what we also mention a bit and what we want to do more research um, on now this year and the upcoming years is that also the value chains um, globalize even more or come even closer together. For example, Sarah um, is developing its own software now, the Inditex open platform software, where it wants to integrate more again um, the production sites in, for example, South Asia, where the clothes come from, so that they want to um, have the whole picture of their um, of their whole production built up in this algorithmic system so that they have even more control, not about not only about the workers um, in Europe, but um, on the whole production chain. And I think this makes it even more obvious in a way that international solidarity and an exchange of workers is necessary and is helpful. And that question of health is so important. And everybody should go check out Yanina's and Marx's writing, Algorithmic Assembly Lines, Digitalization and Resistance in the Retail Sector. A family member of mine who has passed away since she worked at a major retailer and she was at the loading dock uh, door. And the loading dock door would have this beeping sound every time it would go off and it was really loud. She never complained about it. She never did anything about it. And she lost the hearing in her right ear because of this. And people have to make that connection between the workplace and health and know that they can do something 
about having a more healthy workplace. Yanina Hirth and Marcus Rhine have been our guests today. They are co-authors of the article, Algorithmic Assembly Lines, Digitalization and Resistance in the Retail Sector. Yanina and Marcus are members of the Transnational Information Exchange Network, a global grassroots network of workers active in workplaces and communities. Learn more about the Transnational Information Exchange at tie.germany or dash germany.org. I've got one last question for each of you, and I promise we do this with everybody. Our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Just to follow up on Yanina's last response, Marcus, my question from hell for you is, if work makes us sick, what is healthy work? (laughs) Yeah. That's a great question. Um, I don't know if I can answer that. I, I would say that a, a healthy work is a work environment in which we can flourish, in which we can have social interactions, in which we work not for somebody else, but for what we live with our heart with. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that socially, is the key term here i guess as as long as we work on our own for something that we don't uh, know what it's for it might just be unhealthy but as soon as we realize that we work on something together with others and we can totally be in this process like living um, then it might be healthy work and Yanina, our question from hell for you is, this is the subjective part of the industrialization process. Autonomy, creativity, and agency have disappeared, leading to an experience of severe alienation among the workers in digitalization. So Yanina, can alienation lead to revolution? <laughs> um, well, not in an easy way of it comes automatically obviously but um i think we have good experiences with um yeah working really together on this process with the colleagues and also have like really integrated social process of doing the research together kind of we do the interviews we exchange we have the discussions about what we understand from uh, digitalization and this has like the objective and the subjective parts and by these discussions we realize what this alienation really means for us as human beings and what it takes away from us and what we could also win so um yeah no easy process but um this is the part where we stand at the moment and it's definitely um a situation where we can work on and where we can um yeah try to get a better healthier and uh happier working and a life out of and i really appreciate you two being on the show to discuss the digitalization of the workplace because for so long people have been very concerned about what will happen when automation comes to the workplace and what seems to have happened have happened with digitalization is not more convenience and le- and more ease at work 
but more imposition, more surveillance, and even harder work. So, Yanina and Marcus, I really appreciate you being on the show today. Make sure, everybody, make sure you check out their article, Algorithmic Assembly Lines, which you can find at TNI.org. Janina and Marcus's essay is part of the Digital Futures series on technology, power, and emancipation, organized in collaboration with Roar Magazine. Find Roar Magazine at RoarMag.org. Thank you both so much for being on our show today. Thank you Thank for you so much. Us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I'm going to get in contact with you again because I know that your project is ongoing and I find this absolutely fascinating. So thanks again. This is not the media. This is hell. If you liked what you just heard, please show us how much by supporting completely listener supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support or subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Alex, please remind our listening audience what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listening audience is responding. This week's question from hell is, what got you kicked out of the commune? What's, what got the, you? what's the music in the background? Uh, that is John Coltrane's, but not for me. It sounded really familiar to me, that's why. Go ahead. Uh, Jeremy T says, apparently I use a sex hut too often. <laughs> <laughs> Kim G says, snickering. <laughs> Jesse W. says, apparently, you can't just collectivize a Wendy's. <laughs> what got you kicked out of the commune? Kelly H. says, didn't put in enough years to be vested for retirement. Jacob J. says, factionalism. They're a bunch of revisionists. <laughs> Austin H. says, my individualist addiction to passing gas. What got you kicked out of the commune? Ronaldo M. says, they didn't kick me out. I chose to leave. Oh. Zach N. says, I got kicked out for playing hooky, uh, a mental health day when, in fact, I was just living my life vibing. No vibing in the commune. <laughs> Mason W. says, trying to communalize the toothbrushes. <laughs> Gross. Uh, John T. says, I thought all communes were supposed to be nudist. <laughs> Fabio L. says, I complained about too many meetings. What got you kicked out of the commune? Martin F. says, I had the communal bowling ball drilled to only fit my hand. Uh. David S. says, Reverend Jim Jones caught me peeing in the Kool-Aid. Luckiest day of my life. <laughs> and finally, Neil C. says... My credit card was declined. We will have even more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com. I got Rebecca Bartell booked to talk about her new book, Card-Carrying Christians, Debt and the Making of Free Market Spirituality in Columbia. Now, I know that we don't have anybody booked for Thursday's show yet. And uh, Jeff, Check your email. I got a bunch of suggestions. Right. And Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth will be happening on Thursday, of course, during this week's moment. It's Jeff and the Jews again. I just had a suggestion right before we went on air, sent over a suggestion to you about anything that's happening in Palestine and Israel. And we're trying to find somebody who's really good on this, but we just, we're not just looking for some white academic here in the United States, some old dude to tell us what's happening in Israel and Palestine. So if anybody who's listening right now has any suggestions for a really good a analyst on the... Preferably in Palestine. Yeah, that's going to be really difficult seeing as how it's being bombed. Yeah, we've done it, <laughs> we've done it we've before, done it before yes. many times. Uh, speaking of, I got a couple people from the past who I might think might be good. So uh, yeah, check your inbox. But yeah, if oh, you're sweet. listening... Uh, suggestions for people in Gaza would be great. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. God, I hate saying live streaming host. You just say radio. Yeah, I should just say radio. You're right. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Thank you, Alex. And thanks to Janina and Marcus, today's guests. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller.
And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.